This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss edgy talk plain talk unrivaled talk mike graham the only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense in search of the perfect debate the independent republic of mike graham online on dab plus talk radio and talk tv Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. What a place to be this morning, ladies and gentlemen. We've got plenty to go at. Uh, we've got Isabel Oakshot coming back uh, from uh, being away for a couple of weeks. We've got Claire Fox, uh, the Baroness, coming in as well. We've got loads to talk about. The SNP for a start up in Scotland. The story broke just before this show began yesterday uh, when Peter Murrell, Nicholas Sturgeon's husband, was arrested. He was held for about 12 hours. He was questioned. He was released without charge. The story is still running. Uh, there's all sorts of things going on with forensic experts crawling all over the SNP headquarters. We've got them crawling all over the Sturgeon household as well. We'll bring you all the latest from there. We'll also bring you the latest, of course, uh, on the argy-bargy front, front page uh, of The Sun this morning, with the migrant barge, which they want to put off the coast of Dorset. Critics say it's cruel, but The Sun says it's got luxury facilities. And talking of luxury facilities, how's your power shower this morning? Because apparently it turns out that the water companies want you to stop having power showers. Not because they want you to be filthy and dirty and disgusting, but they say it's going to ruin the water supply because we're going to run out of water. Do they know that this is the wettest March that we have just had uh, the month before this uh, since about 1981 or something ridiculous like that? They, They want you to stop having power showers despite the fact that they leak billions and billions and billions of litres of water into the ground every single day. Unbelievable. Uh, We've got Royal Exclusive on the front page of the Daily Mail. They say uh, that the Sussexes still won't admit to whether or not they're going to come to the coronation. Uh, On the Times front page, we've also got, of course, the uh, luxurious prime uh, uh, MP for Blackpool, uh, who seems to be offering himself up uh, every second of the day uh, to betting companies if they would like to have some kind of lobbying done on their behalf. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'll also uh, be talking in a big way uh, about what's going on in France. Gavin Mortimer is going to join us. It's the Easter weekend, of course, because this is Maundy Thursday. It used to be the day, uh, the only day uh, in the calendar apart 
from Christmas Day uh, and Christmas Eve when people didn't work in the newspaper business because there used to be a time when there was no newspaper on Good Friday. So Monday, Thursday was a big day off for everybody in Fleet Street. Not anymore, of course, because the big weekend is upon us. Is it going to be the same as last weekend, which is exactly when everything went horribly wrong for anybody trying to get across the channel? If you were sitting in Dover for 17 hours, you know what I mean. But if you're going away this weekend, is it going to be terrible? We'll find out from Ben Clapworthy uh, coming up. Also, it's a Thursday club, so we'll be checking in with our good friends at the Three Drinkers to see what they're doing. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let us get it on. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Let us say a very, very good morning to Baroness Claire Fox. Claire, very good morning to you. Great to be with you, Mike. Good to see you. We've got a lot to talk about, including a couple of free speech issues. There's something very weird going on in Canada that we need to address, but we'll get to that in a little while. I guess we should really kick off with the SNP and uh, uh, the sort of the king and queen of Scotland, as as they were, um, Nicola Sturgeon and Peter Murrell, uh, who sort of ruled the SNP and ruled Scotland by default, really. Um, an extraordinary story, an extraordinary development yesterday, isn't it? Absolutely. I, those pictures of the police surrounding their home, uh, putting up a tent, when I mean, it was a bit like watching CSI or something. Um, you know, the kind of thing you see at murder inquiry. Yeah. So, well, I was expecting, I was, I was expecting, you know, Taggart to turn up and say, there's been exactly. a London. Exactly. I mean, you might have thought there was, go- I mean, this was much anticipated and you thought that maybe they'd kind of go in and walk out carrying computers and boxes. Yeah. But this took on a much more dramatic uh, look, at least. Can't be good for politics in Scotland. But on a serious note, of course, we don't know whether anyone's even going to be charged no. here. But I think there is a sense in which that something rotten at the heart of Scotland um, is exemplified by what's happened, I suppose, to Murrell and you know Nicola yeah. Sturgeon, well and truly in the middle of it. There's something of the, in inverted commas, banana republic here that you just feel as though the Scottish elite have really got away with, you know, lording it over the people of Scotland via the SNP. Very little challenge over the years and things have seriously started to unravel. You have a sense that nobody really knew what was going on. And we already got that when, in fact, during the election for a new SNP leader, we discovered that the whole state of the SNP as a party was in absolute array. that They didn't even know how many no- members they right. had, whether there was any kind of tampering with the figures there. So this kind of added layer of money and corruption, possibly, right. I think just adds to the notion that Scotland is not really, as it happens, a, a country that's well governed at all. And they've been pointing their finger at mm. Westminster for so long that obviously there's a certain amount of schadenfreude here. Yeah, but isn't it extraordinary? Because it was only, what, a couple of years ago that that Nicola Sturgeon was being looked upon as one of the great leaders of our generation, one of the finest, you know, political minds um, uh, ever ever seen in in the history of politics in Britain. And now here she is um, looking at a police investigation into what her husband has been doing, um, looking at the party that she sort of inherited from Alex Salmond as almost uh, very near um, collapse, you would think. Listen, I wouldn't write off Nicola Sturgeon yet. I mean, I'll bet you anything she's about to get one of those big, you know, there's a whole sort of range of globe-trotting eco-elite jobs. And we've just seen uh, 
I heard from you um, from New Zealand getting yes. one of those handed to her by none, none other than our future king. Yes. So uh, what you find is that these people are almost irrepressible. They they kind of wander around the globe after they've been, you know, turfed out or left their positions yeah. and seem to reemerge. So I wouldn't write her off. But I think you're right that one of the difficulties that we've got, with, this is a general problem of politics, is that there's just a complete, huge chasm between those who run society and the lives of ordinary people. And I think that the SNP had, a, you know, have had a, a complete dominance over Scottish politics over recent years, and they just got carried away with themselves, didn't bother thinking about Scottish voters. Mm. SNP might have got the votes, but then they got, you know, as it were, so self-possessed of their own righteousness that they brought in things like, we shouldn't forget this, the Gender Recognition Act, which was hugely unpopular. But before that, we'd had the Name Person Act, which was an attempt by the state to have a guardian for each child in Scotland, not their parents. Yes. And that was kicked out. We've had this terribly draconian free speech, uh, assaults on free speech with their hate crime bill and so on and so forth. So they've become so sure of themselves that they haven't bothered to look over their shoulder at their own electorate. And I think that that removal of them from the lives of ordinary people, mm. of even believing they're accountable, is what's done for Nicola Sturgeon, that they thought they could get away with it, yeah. basically. Well, I think it's been shown up, hasn't it, by these various different kind of situations in terms of um, some MPs. I mean, we've got one again this morning, front page of the yeah. uh, at Times, the Tory MP for Blackpool South, I think Scott Benson, offering to sort of um, help people out for... Uh, for presumably a bit of money, and 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 that other sting that was done the other weekend when people were talking about being paid sixty thousand pounds a day. I mean, you're talking about most of the country that wouldn't earn that in two years. Yeah, but one of the things that I, I actually I'm glad that you raised that question. I mean, first of all, I'd be really mad if I was the gambling uh, industry, wouldn't you? Because well, they actually haven't done anything wrong, but it's that they were pretending to be those people lobbying. So yes. I'm just pointing that out. Yes. But I, I think that um, it's quite interesting that, that that we see the corruption at this really crass level here of an MP being offered money, saying what he could do for that money. But there's something more insidious, I think, that we don't often talk about, which is the lobbying that's done by NGOs, by charities, doesn't ever get condemned. Now, it's not about money, but there is undoubtedly a huge influence over politicians by organisations that are not accountable. So what you get is the, the great and the good. Or if you, Whenever I have rows in, you know, in the House of Lords or what have you, uh, the, the, with against ministers, mm. they'll say, we've done a consultation, we've talked to stakeholders. And when you look at it, and, and therefore we've talked to the public, but actually these stakeholders are often highly politicised partisan NGOs. But because they are kind of worthy organisations, somehow that is not seen as as corrupt as if it's a big corporate with money to flash around. But I actually think it's a, a dangerous situation that we've got ourselves into, that those are the people who are influencing things more than the electorate. Yes, and that is the problem, isn't it? Because there is this sense that the electorate has become more and more irrelevant to ministers and to governments and to even yeah. opposition leaders. I mean, we've got Keir Starmer uh, say that he's going to back the rewriting of the equality law. I mean, all of this law has kind of been made around um, issues that have come up 
from time to time in Parliament. But nobody's really been asking the people of this country what they think, have they? Well, that's, a, I mean, a good point to go back to Sturgeon. If you look at the way that she explains why they brought in the Gender Recognition Act, they'll say that they did full consultations. And, of course, what they did was they talked to organisations yeah. who were sympathetic to trans ideology. Right. Well, that's and not indeed, a consultation, is it? No, exactly. But they'll say they talked to stakeholders and charities and people who work with young trans people. But what they did was they actively stopped organisations uh, like uh, For Women Scotland or anybody that was gender critical. They didn't just stop them uh, joining consultations. They actually demonised them and said, you know, that they were usual, you know, fascist adjacent, yeah. all the usual things far right. I think um, you've raised the Keir Starmer thing on, on the, the Equality Act. I mean, the Equality Act and a lot of legislation has got itself into a mess yeah. because it just simply nodded through a lot of the conflation of gender and biological mm. sex without thinking of the consequences, right. trying to do the good thing. But the problem with making laws in that way is they have far-reaching consequences. We now know that, of course, that carelessness in lawmaking has led to a situation where women's uh, single-sex spaces have been effectively done away with mm. through the law, yeah. and now they have to tinker with the law again to set it right. And that's, and, that's, and that's why it's so ridiculous, because as we oh, saw with yeah. Nicola Sturgeon, she got herself... I mean, that cul-de-sac that she ended up in when she was being interviewed by STV uh, in Scotland was of, of entirely of her own making. You know, she disappeared entirely. you know, up her own alley, as it were, and she suddenly found herself having to say that, well, actually, in the prison context, you know, a trans woman isn't a woman. <laughs> and, then, and that was it. And it, all you could see, everything's just falling down around her. It was like, that's the end. Yes, exactly. And... Uh, we should also bear in mind, just because I, I always like to bash the SNP and it's always good fun. Right. But the sad truth is the whole notion of gender recognition was brought in under a conservative government's right. watch. Not that particular bill, but right early on. I remember when it came up and they were talking about the new gender recognition. They actually were advocating at the time uh, self-ID, yeah. uh, which we now know Well, I remember nonsense. when Penny Mordaunt was running for the leadership that people who were not in favour of Penny Mordaunt kept pointing me towards a speech that she had made uh, in Parliament, which was basically that very thing, saying that anybody could be a woman. And in fact, most of the uh, arguments that I have in relation to gender critical, it's, it's both the government and the Labour Party. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's all of them. You know, Lib Dems, Greens, yeah. uh, the SNP are at an extreme level. But I, I don't think I, we saw it the weekend uh, that, that Keir Starmer kind of made headlines by doing an interview with the Sunday Times in, uh, you know, great that the Sunday Times got that story. But he said 99.9% yeah. .9 women do not have a penis. But it's like, no, oh, women. Yeah, women don't have a penis. But I mean, you might think, oh, well, he's almost there. But actually, he's implying that some women can have a penis. Yeah. But obviously, they can't. And he right? got That's that ridiculous. completely wrong. And having got, yeah. and having run all the way out to the front of the house and, and gone outside the door, he's come back in again because he's gone, oh, God, exactly. that was all wrong. And now, of course, he's now his latest line on it is nobody cares. Nobody wants now, to talk about it. The, the, the thing that's most distressing is that in that same interview, he also made the point that he thought it had become overly toxic and that it was time to almost move on. Mm. Now, yes. That is a really insulting comment, isn't it? Because he's and he's talked about it being a toxic. You know, it's like people like myself, but I'm I'm just only a minor player in this. But the the big players like Mayor Forstater, 
uh, and, you know, Posey Parker, these people who really put themselves on the line, the women who are being sacked as we speak or losing research jobs or what have you in universities because they're gender critical. It's as though it's their fault, a bit victim blaming here, yeah. that they won't move on from this kind of like annoying irritation right. of discussing this issue. But let me tell you, no one's moving on anyway. This is the big fight. Yeah, and absolutely if he, right. If he wants to say, oh, I, I, nothing to see here, I want to get away from it, that's because he's being cowardly about not taking a side on the issue. Exactly right. And the irony, of course, as well, is that the people who say, why are you so bothered about it? Why don't you just let people be who they are? Well, in that case, why are you so bothered about it? You know, you go back around in a big circle. But stay where you are, Claire. We've got to take a little break. We've got to talk still about your uh, little problem uh, with free speech that you had with a college in London as well. Plus, uh, we're going to take a little trip over to Canada to find out what's going on over there. There's some very odd things happening uh, with their laws as well on this business. This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're going to talk about that emergency testing system coming up in a little while as well. Uh, we've got Baroness Claire Fox with us. I'll ask you about that, Claire, in a minute too. But let's first of all, before we do anything, I'll just have a little look at uh, a video that we found uh, on the system last night. And this is from the Ontario Legislative Assembly. So it's a sort of a, a sort of slightly minor assembly inside of Canada. It's not the Canadian actual government, but it's the Ontario provincial government. Um, and here we have somebody who wants to introduce introduce a new bill that would create community safety zones. I'll tell you for whom in a moment, because they've actually expanded upon the LGBTQI plus scenario by adding some more stuff at the front of it. Um, but this is a member uh, of that particular um, Ontario Legislative Assembly, uh, Kristin Wong Tam, talking about the New Democratic Party and what they want to do. Have a look. Firstly, it enables the Attorney General to create a 2S LGBTQI plus community safety zone to prohibit within 100 meters of the property any homophobic, transphobic act of intimidation, threat, offensive threats, offensive remarks, protest, disturbance, and distribution of hate propaganda within the meaning of the uh, criminal code. It also comes with it a penalty of $25,000 if prosecuted successfully. Now, for those of you wondering what the 2L, 2S stands for, apparently that stands for a two-spirit. I'm not even sure what that is. But so now it's a two-spirit, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, and additional sexually and gender-diverse people. It's getting longer, this thing, isn't it? Pretty soon it's just going to be a load of letters jumbled up. I mean, I don't wish to uh, in any way uh, ridicule them, uh, Claire, but, I mean, it's just getting a bit stupid, this, isn't it? Well, you should definitely ridicule that ridiculous uh, <laughs> list of letters listen the thing that's most distressing is that the lgb is hugely important for decades people fought for lesbian gay and bisexual rights because they were criminalized and denied rights yeah and on the back of what was an important campaign for equality and against bigotry has been hijacked by a load of letters but with serious connotations because as we know it's led to the introduction of everything from teaching kink into primary school teach uh, uh, pupils to uh, you know having a serious assault on the rights of women as biological beings and so on and and, and forcing and the worst thing is is making us uh, question real reality where we're told that we have to through coerced speech say that somebody for example is a, who is a man is a woman yeah. and is messing up the minds of our young people today so right. this is a serious 
example of what goes wrong, by the way, with devolution. You know, I, I, this is in Canada, but it's a provincial attempt at bringing in a law. The problem, you, you would just think, oh, this is just some wacky thing that's happening. The only thing that made me nervous was that I was familiar with the language of these community safety zones yeah. and 100 metres around, in this instance, uh, drag queen events that you will be prosecuted if you say anything which they consider to be offensive, mm. criminalised and, and given a fine of $25,000. Because it reminded me of the buffer zones that have been introduced in this country only recently mm. in terms of buffer zones around abortion clinics. But it, it, why I oppose that is not because I sympathise with those standing outside mm. abortion clinics, but I said that there was a dangerous precedent set here yeah. where anybody who somebody else decided was saying something offensive could end up being criminalised. And that's why it kind of really rang yes. a, a worrying No, absolutely, because you and I have, have, have argued about this before, haven't we? Because you've been un, un, uneasy about some of the um, uh, planned introductions of, of these sort of hate crime bills where yeah. you're not allowed to basically demonstrate anywhere. Uh, and if you do demonstrate, could you, would you mind doing it quite quietly, please, and all of that? Yeah. And I think I'm beginning, uh, bizarrely, to, to sort of move towards your point of view here, because... While I absolutely detest the Just Stop Oil crazies, you know, and I don't really wish to have my journey interrupted by them, um, you're, you're right to say that, you know, where it goes next is the, is the bad news rather than, I mean, I'd quite like to stop them from demonstrating, but, but equally, I understand that if I stop them, then somebody else might stop me. <laughs> exactly. So, so we'll end up on the same page on that. Let's talk <laughs> about your, um, uh, your um, experience of late, because we haven't really seen you since you were, no, um, right. were cancelled uh, by, was it Holloway College or somewhere like that? Royal, Hollow Royal Holloway, yeah. Yeah, because of a retweet of a Ricky Gervais joke. Yeah, I, I think this this is a kind of story of our time in as much as uh, actually it's not that glamorous, really. I was invited by the debating society to, would you believe it, talk about the importance of debate. <laughs> and, um, and I agreed. And, and the debating society just wanted me to go in and talk about that. The student union investigated to see whether I was safe enough to be allowed near a student. And guess what? After months... I passed. Right. You know, it's kind of like so patronising that the idea that they basically I was some criminal. Yeah, I know. And then once they announced that I was speaking, some societies, guess what, to probably uh, spirit level, <laughs> whatever that, 2SL, anyway, the LGBTQI plus societies objected and they found evidence that I would be a threat to all students at Royal Holloway because I retweeted a Ricky Gervais joke. And instead of... Which happened you know, to be about trans women, funnily Which enough. happened to be about trans women. Now, I wasn't intending to talk in my importance of debate. It wasn't as though I was talking about the trans issue, particularly other than uh, that we should have free speech on any issue. But they managed to turn this into a major campaign, not against me, but against the debating societies. Yeah. They got these, you know, these very well-meaning young students who thought it would be interesting to have outside speakers me in that instance to hear different perspectives, because not all students are snowflakes. Some of them might want to hear the odd challenging view. And they were then bullied and strong-armed into basically cancelling the talk a week before, even though it had been booked like six months earlier. So, you know, it, and, and I think I would never have thought that, Mike, just to say, you know, I've this has happened to me before in the background, and I've never made a fuss. But when then some of the students came and said they wanted to fight it, and then we wrote to the university uh, principal and they got back with the most, you know, dismissive reply, you know, oh, we've investigated this student union didn't 
stop Baroness Watson speaking, nothing to see here, go away. Right. I was so outraged. So basically I kind of went, as it were, went to the press. Mm. But I, I think it's not about me getting cancelled. It's about realising that behind the scenes at universities, there's this completely febrile atmosphere where if you invite anybody that is not approved of, either by the official student union or the university authorities, anyone slightly contentious, that there's a lot of, you know, uh, harassment that goes mm. on of the students who've done the inviting. And that's a kind of silent cancelling, cancel culture. Yes, and it's worse it's for them because they have to go there yeah. every day, don't they? Exactly. And, and, and they were told, you know, your reputation will be ruined yeah. if you have this woman on campus, i.e. me, mm. because she will cause all this fuss and all these students will be under threat. Now, I have never physically, and by the way, I've never physically been a threat to any student, but I also do not have any problem with students who are trans. Let them get on with it, yeah. right? I object to trans ideology, which I wasn't even going to talk about, and I object to the way that trans ideology embraced by not just trans people but some trans people and a lot of right on people who've decided this is the new religion that they're going to go by i object to the way that's being imposed on everybody else well that's the thing and and and, yeah. and, and as i say and the, and the main point of everything that they say is why are you so bothered by this you know why are you so offended by it it's like well i'm not offended by it uh, but what i would like to do is disagree with you and that's not the well, same thing and why would why didn't they come to my talk? Yeah, right. I mean, if you just if you think God, that awful you know woman Claire Fox is coming, you know that unelected peer, we're going to go and have a go. That's what you expect from students. I didn't expect to be talking to a group group of students there where they all nodded along every time I do a talk. I mean, I'm talking in Manchester this evening. They're not all going to agree with me. I'm expecting to be challenged, to be argued with. Some people, guess what? Do not think I am talking common sense, would want to have a, a row with me about positions that I've got on a range of issues. That's debate. That's democracy. And for young students to effectively be told that they can't do that and for the university not to, to be so indifferent that they didn't care that this had happened, I think is a really letting down mm. new generations who are never going to be able to cope with any of the big challenges in society that we face if they're basically told that they have to be protected from uncomfortable ideas. Yes, it is absolutely extraordinary. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I don't know where that half hour went. Claire, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. And good luck with that free speech crusade. Baroness Claire Fox there talking an awful lot of sense. Um, by the way, in case you're wondering, the two-spirit uh, scenario, in as in 2SLGBTQI+, apparently means um, people with a feminine and masculine spirit living in the same body. Okay. Fair enough. You might need to see somebody about that. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, the emergency system, I didn't get around to talking to Claire Fox about it actually, but Terry in Ramsbottom says you can bet that after the emergency system test, some idiots will start pranking their mates with fake emergency messages. <laughs> I mean, I, well, how do we get here exactly? I mean, I'm, it may well be that somebody can explain to me why having an emergency message that goes to absolutely everybody in the country at exactly the same time is a great idea, even if it's only a test. I just seem to, I just worry, right, uh, because everything that is organised uh, as something that has to be done technologically from the central government point of view in this country seems to go wrong. Uh, so I'm pretty sure there'll be places where you can't get it. I mean, for example, if you're in Dorset, 
Dorset we're about to talk about because the barge is going to be in Dorset, right? The one thing that the immigrants who are going to be on the barge won't be able to do is ring their mates and tell them what a great time they're having because there's no bleeding phone signal in Dorset. You can't get one. So they won't be able to order any pizza either. And they probably won't get the emergency message. So if there's a massive tsunami coming, they won't know because they're in Dorset. I've been to Corfe Castle. I used to have to, I used to stay there sometimes. I used to have to walk to the top of the high street, which is not particularly high, and hold my phone literally up in the air like that to be able to send an email to the office to tell them that they couldn't get hold of me. Unbelievable. Anyway, Gavin Mortimer's here uh, from The Spectator. He's over in France, from whence many of these illegal migrants have been coming. Well, when I say many, I mean all of them, really. Uh, Gavin, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Do you have uh, any of these emergency signals, messages that get sent out from the government? Because apparently we're getting one sometime in, uh, I think it's in late April, is it? Yeah, late April. Um, they're going to test uh, and they're going to send this alarm to everybody's mobile phone. And apparently that's what they're going to do in the future whenever there's an emergency. Don't ask me why. Um, you ever get anything like that? No, fortunately not in France. There's lots of uh, ridiculous gimmicks, but that one hasn't yet arrived. I'm sure it will, though, because most of these leaders copy each other. Yeah, they really do. They go, well, this is a good idea. It just seems like yeah. a complete waste of time to me. But anyway, let's talk about the barge. We've got a big story on the front page of the Sun this morning. Um, Argy Bargy, where they're saying that uh, they're going to house a bunch of uh, legal migrants on a barge off the coast of Dorset. Um, it's going to hold 500 people. They've described it as uh, luxurious. It's not particularly luxurious, but, I mean, you know, it's better than sleeping on the streets of Paris, I suppose. Um, but once again, I find myself talking to you where nothing has really changed. You know, even as we speak, there's probably a couple of hundred people arriving uh, on the south coast. Uh, it's Easter weekend, so I dare say the border force will be uh, on a sort of skeletal staff. So who knows whether there's anybody going to be processed. But the problem ain't going anywhere anytime soon. No, it's not. So 500 on a barge, that still leaves 50,500 to deal with. So we've got some ways to go. Yeah. Um, it's been quite interesting. It's just a gimmick, Mike. It's really grabs headlines. Quite funny to see the reaction in some of the usual quarters. Yeah. There's, you'd think that we're putting them on those the 19th century hulks, the prison ships anchored off, uh, off Kent. It's, as you said, they, they seem to be quite... Uh, well, they've got all the, uh, all the mod cons, so it's not exactly going to be a hardship, but it's not addressing the real problem, as you said. And I, I mean, it's interesting, Mike, because I've just been doing some research before coming on and speaking to you. And this first three months of the year, in fact, the number of migrants coming across the channel is 17% down. So it's 3,793 so far, still a lot. But last year, first three months of the year, it was 4,500. Significantly, only 5% of the um, number coming across so far this year are Albanians. Uh, 28% came across of the of 46,000 who came across last year. 28% were Albanians. So that does seem, give the government some credit that since December, they've really been working with the Albanian government to try and reduce the numbers. And that seems to be working. But of course, the, the question then arises, so if it's not Albanians coming across, who are coming mm. across? And there's some interesting figures in the French press recently about Italy. Italy, um, the numbers, uh, their record numbers so far this year. In fact, last weekend of March, 5,600 came across, landed on Italian uh, soil. Right. Most were from Guinea, 1,700, and then another 1,700 from the Ivory Coast. Right. So these, these are not countries, they're not fleeing persecution. 
It's not a civil war. They're economic migrants. They're coming across in, in greater numbers. Mm. Interestingly, you might, they're coming across from Turkey now. How are instead they? Instead of, of Libya, yeah. yeah. And apparently the French press are saying this is because of the uh, the Turkish mafia are working with the Albanian mafia. As we've, you and I have discussed this before, how the Albanian mafia are really the drivers of the uh, the, the people trafficking that's going across uh, Europe. And so they've, got, they've opened up a new route from Bodrum in um, in yeah. Turkey, uh, very successful. And of course, this, this puts a lot of pressure on Georgia Maloney, because when she came to power in September last year, um, it was very much on a, I'm going to stop illegal immigration. But she's found out, what Richie Sunak's going to find out, that you need a, an EU-coordinated fight back to, to stop this. It, it, it is an invasion of our of European borders. Yeah. That's you know, that's not hyperbole. That is what's happening. And um, uh, just just coming out of his gimmicks, uh, it's sticking plasters, Mike. We, we need well, exactly. to start well, defending well, but, European But like we borders. said, when when you talked about the Albanian mafia and their dominance of Western Europe now, and, and the, the way that uh, the, the way that organised crime works is that it keeps expanding. Uh, until it's stopped, and the only place uh, where you can stop it is by cutting it off at the at the start of it. You know, yeah. not not by waiting until all these people start arriving because they're making so much money now. Uh, interesting that you say they're now coming from Turkey because the problem Italy had before was they were coming and landing on those little islands around Sicily, weren't they? Um, I can't remember. There's one that sounds a bit like Lollapalooza, Lamp- but Lampedusa. That's but, it. Yeah. But, um, yeah. And and uh, um, they were coming in boats, sort of 200, 300 people on them, much bigger boats than the ones that we get. And in fact, one of them sank, I think, not that long ago. So the numbers yeah. in Italy are huge. And then, of course, once they yeah. get to Italy, then they can easily find their way to Calais and easily then find their way to Dover. Yeah, and this is what a lot of the economic migrants from Africa want. And to give credit to Maloney, Mike, because she's done a deal with um, Libya recently uh, in uh, getting gas, uh, a very a billion, I think a seven billion pound uh, dollar project, um, supplying of gas. Part of it was Libya's going to crack down on these uh, illegal migrants. But it's like whack-a-mole. So she's got Libya under control. What happens, as you said, the mafia, again, Albanian mafia, always at the heart of this. They're they're operating in Libya. So, okay, that route's um, been shut down. So we'll just simply go across to Turkey now. They're very good with the Albanian mafia, working with other mafias, be it the uh, Sicilian Mafia, the Italian Mafia, the Turkish Mafia, I mean, just finding a new route. So, it's, again, it's, it's 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 another route, and, and I'm sure that in time they'll close down the Turkish route and they'll open up another route. So, yep, it's it's not a, it's a problem that's going to keep getting worse, and, and more and more uh, migrants from Africa, when they see the success, see how easy it is to get into Europe and then how attractive it is to get into, easy to get into the UK and how we, and how, you know, the, the, the way that we look after them compared to other European countries, uh, the, the UK will remain the number one destination. Yeah, absolutely right. And as far as the uh, the political kind of reaction in, in France is concerned, I mean, I was making a joke last weekend uh, that wasn't it interesting that people who were trying to get to France legally uh, by using the ferry system uh, were finding themselves in queues of up to 17 hours. I said maybe what we should do is get the French border police uh, to check the, uh, the migrants as they come in, because if they kept them waiting for 17 hours on the beaches, maybe they'd stop coming. Yeah, exactly. That's right. They're very, they're very methodical when it comes to... Uh 
delaying Brits coming coming into France, but uh, in the other direction, they're not quite so methodical. Uh. It's um, with what's going on in uh, Macron's in China at the moment, uh, trying to act the big peacemaker again, despite his failure with Putin. Um, but of course, today, actually, Mike, it's another big day of uh, protests at, uh, at the raising of the retirement age. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Macron actually addressed, uh, gave a live TV interview a couple of weeks ago talking about the pension reform, etc. And uh, he, they asked him about the, because uh, there should be a big immigration bill that was supposed to, to start moving through the uh, Senate and then into Parliament at the end of last month. That's sort of been put on hold indefinitely to the irritation of the likes of Marine Le Pen, who was saying, you know, this, this problem is getting worse. And Macron just keeps picking the can down the road. Yeah, and that's all he's ever going to do because he's got more problems to deal with on his home front than, than he's got to worry about ours, I dare say. Gavin, thanks for your help. Good to talk to you. Gavin Mortimer from The Spectator there reporting in uh, from France. We'll be bringing you an update, by the way, uh, on what's happening with travel because it is the big Easter getaway. It is the big Easter weekend. Last weekend, uh, there were people waiting in buses and coaches and cars to get on ferries for 15, 17, sometimes 20 hours. Uh, it's thought that it won't be that bad this week because this is the second weekend. And even though it's the Eastern Bank holiday weekend, uh, the traffic traffic shouldn't be quite so bad. But you never know. And we'll be talking to Ben Clatworthy about that coming up a little bit later on. 0344 499 Coming up, uh, we're going to talk about water because apparently we're running out of it. If you can believe that, you can believe anything. This is Talk TV. Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's Maundy Thursday, everybody. Uh, just in case you hadn't remembered that Easter weekend was looming, we don't yet know, uh, but we will find out precisely what the travelling uh, situation will be because if you remember last weekend down at Dover, uh, there were people waiting 17 hours to get on ferries to get across uh, to the continent of Europe where they were all going on holiday. Uh, it is the big Easter getaway this weekend as well, so we'll let you know precisely what the roads are going to be like, what the trains are going to be like, what the planes are going to be like, and how easy it's going to be to actually get anywhere uh, because it's becoming more and more difficult in this country uh, to do anything. But don't worry, because coming up, uh, there's going to be a 10-second sound and vibration spectacular on Sunday the 23rd of April uh, when the government send out a testing alarm system uh, for upcoming and pending disasters. I don't know why. I mean, they might as well put one off every day because every day there's some kind of governmental uh, cock-up of one kind or another. Uh, in this hour, Isabel Oakshot returns, Talk TV's international editor. We've got plenty to talk to her about. Joe Biden's coming to Belfast and Dublin. Uh, we've also got uh, President Xi over in China meeting up uh, with Emmanuel Macron uh, and I think von der Leyen is going to go there as well. Uh, who knows what they're going to cook up uh, when it comes to Ukraine. It may well be there's a, a sort of a shift in policy. It may well be that uh, there could be some kind of light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, but let's say a very good morning to Isabel. Isabel, nice to see you. Welcome back. Good morning, and I'm very grateful to have actually got back without any drama. <laughs> my, my journey wasn't complicated, but the way things are going, who knows whether you may have to wait, you know, 15 hours in a right. bus in a car park somewhere. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I'm off, off to, to, to France, funnily enough, on Saturday, and I've got no idea how that's going to go. I'm taking the dog, taking the car, taking the kids, oh. taking the train. Um, so, you know, it could be an absolute... I mean, somebody said to me this morning, are you looking forward to it? I went, not really. <laughs> 
know, I think you need to pack your camping gear and your thermos and a lot of food and God knows what else, a portable loo probably as well. Yes, absolutely right. I mean, we've got so much to talk about this morning. Um, Macron will get to, Biden will get to, but I can't uh, miss out asking you, first of all, about Scott Benton, the latest MP uh, in the Tory party who seems to have fallen for a rather easily foreseeable trick you would have thought uh, he's on the front page of the times he's the mp for blackpool south offering to help a betting company which doesn't exist uh, to, uh, to 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 lobby ministers i mean it's incredible isn't it how stupid these people are hello mps here is a broadcast for your benefit look this is peak time as elections approach this is peak time for journalists to pay tricks like this so if you get approached by somebody offering to pay you quite a lot of money for doing things that seem easy but a little bit dodgy, chances are it's a scam and you're going to look very, very stupid. So don't be greedy. Be smart. Just say, no, thank you. I'm very, very, very busy looking after my constituents. I'm 100% focused on that, particularly at this time in the run-up yeah. to an election. Yeah, I mean, that's a very, very that's a million dollars worth of good advice, that. I mean, but I bet they won't listen. There'll be another five or six before the summer, I'm sure. I can't even believe... I mean, these things are as old as... They're probably older than I am. Yeah. You know, the idea that, that seasoned politicians, smart people are falling for them... And, you know, any good newspaper will set up a sophisticated operation. It's not going to be just a question of Googling to see whether the company they say they represent actually exists and then finding a website and going, oh, well, that's all right then. I'll just say that I charge £1,500 an hour. You know, these investigative operations are quite subtle mm. sometimes. A lot of resources goes into them. You've got to do an awful lot more due diligence or maybe just don't go there in the first place. Well, exactly right. And I mean, people always say, well, perhaps we should stop MPs from having second jobs. I don't see how you can do that because MPs will always be doing other things, whether it's writing an article for a newspaper uh, or doing a television programme or a news, uh, you know, maybe a radio programme. You know, they will have other interests. Some of them are doctors, some of them are lawyers. You know, you really can't police that. So you can never say that they can't do a second job. I actually don't have a problem with MPs having a second job. They've got to serve their constituents first and foremost. And if they don't, then they will be kicked out. The, the, the slight difficulty is that once you've elected your MP, you probably don't have a chance to kick them out for another four to five mm. years. But I think that having that other um, interest, particularly, as you say, if they are a doctor or, um, you know, perhaps they have some a role with the armed forces or you know, a whole range of things uh, that MPs do or did in a previous life and want to keep going, that actually adds to the richness of expertise in the House of Commons. I don't think most people want our politicians just to be professional mm. politicians and we'd have to pay them a lot more if that was going to be the deal. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Well, it comes down to are they or are they not taking the mickey? Um, and constituents usually get a pretty good whiff of whether their MPs are taking the mickey or not, just by very dint mm. of whether they're actually 
turning up for the ribbon cutting ceremony and all those things that MPs, some of them rather resent doing, but is part of what they should be doing. Yeah, exactly right. And I mean, since we last spoke, there's been a whole flurry of activity. We've had Rishi Sunak announcing things right, left and centre. It seemed at one point that there was a new announcement coming out sort of every second or third hour. You know, we've had the migrants uh, being housed in, in disused prison camps. We've now got them housed on a barge. Uh, we've got them being sent back to Rwanda. Uh, we've got antisocial behaviour charters coming out all over the place. It's almost as though somebody's in a room in Downing Street, just passing out pieces of paper going, do this, quick, immigration, law and order, you know, tell them the parole board's not working, just keep keep going. But it, it does seem to be working in some way, doesn't it? Well, you say it's almost as if someone in Downing Street <laughs> doing that. It is exactly what they're doing, you know, keep the distraction going. I mean, Sunak has said himself that he should be judged on his delivery, not just the delivery of the message, but the actuality of the policy and the barge policy with the migrants. Uh, I mean, it's an absolute classic of let's be seen to be doing something. Let's have some accommodation that looks pretty um, utilitarian. No one can call it luxury. Let, let us look as if we are doing something very, very proactive to solve this problem because they kind of know that they're not going to be able to stop the boats anytime soon. I mean, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, has literally admitted as much. She won't guarantee it. Now, politicians never want to guarantee anything because they know that they're probably uh, setting up, setting themselves up for a fall. Um, but this is a kind of, you know, yet another, it's a kind of floating equivalent of the Rwanda idea. <laughs> Let's make it, make it look like we've got a grip of this. I mean, I strongly suspect that vessel, if we can call it that, it looks like a kind of cargo ship yeah. type thing. Um, will never be full of migrants. Can you imagine the utter mayhem, mm. you know, tales of uh, of violence, of, of, of disease spreading, of all sorts of other bad things happening in that container um, will we'll never actually materialise because there probably only ever will be uh, a symbolic two or three people on board yeah. this thing. And since there's going to be so many spare rooms, uh, I'm here by volunteering to take up residence where I shall keep an eye on uh, who's coming and going, how long they're staying mm. there. And perhaps I'll do a little bit investigating myself as to how genuine their tales of fleeing from yeah. terror actually are. Because if they are fleeing from terror, I'm sure they'd be really glad to be in that nice, um, that nice vessel. You would think, absolutely right. But it also does beg the question, doesn't it, that, you know, why don't they put one of these out there for the homeless? Why don't they collect all the homeless people who are suffering and cold and miserable and wet on the streets of Britain and put them in one of those? Because it wouldn't cost any more money than they're going to spend on these migrants who shouldn't even be here. Well, um, I can tell you that our Talk TV colleague, Nicola Thorpe, has got a barge that's going begging. She has her own barge and she's desperate to give it out to an asylum seeker. But apparently, guess what, Mike? There's a load of red tape involved. Government doesn't actually want her barge, even if it's a free barge. Oh, really? Interesting. Fascinating. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the, 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 the French, because Emmanuel Macron currently over in China... Um, what we used to say in America when I lived there and worked there was that whenever there was trouble at home, the president would always find somewhere to go abroad so that he could take everybody's mind off his domestic travails. And Macron could certainly do with that uh, after what's been happening in, uh, in Paris and the streets burning all over the place. Yes, absolutely. I mean, France is in a complete mess. It's just chaos there. A lot of the problems um, relating to travel at the moment are linked to various strikes by air traffic controllers. I mean, 
um, we were flying to Geneva and there was all sorts of shenanigans about having to fly around French airspace because of these um, these striking workers. Uh, And France, interestingly, has a a very similar set of problems to the UK. Um, So many uh, Remainers like to criticise Brexit for some of our for example, problems with labour market. But having just spent the last nine days in France talking to some local businesses, um, they were saying, you know, I was asking, will you still be here next year? You know, some of these businesses are very seasonal. Mm. And one in particular said, actually, I'm not sure we will be next year because I just can't get the workers. Huh. And when I asked why that was, um, it was to do with the welfare uh, that's on offer, the social benefits, yes. effectively, in France. So this is not a uniquely British or Brexit-related problem. Well, indeed, as we saw uh, with the Dover port problem as well, it was nothing to do with the fact that we left the European Union. It was everything to do with the fact that the French um, border force are particularly slow and don't provide enough people to, to deal with a very large number of, of vessels and, and a very large number of, of uh, vehicles coming their way, as they would do on the first weekend of the school holidays. Yeah, who would have thought it? I mean, not not exactly unpredictable, is it? But also, they don't mind they don't mind screwing us over, do they? And that bit probably is slightly Brexit related. You know, it tends to be the UK flights and the UK links that are most affected if there's a choice between affecting us and others. Um, so it will be interesting to see what comes of that meeting with President Xi. I mean, I'm not really in favour of any of us um, on the on the side of the gods um, cozying up to President Xi. I mean, I just think that any interaction with him has to be very carefully handled so that we make it absolutely clear during these interactions how much we deplore so much of what the Chinese regime is up to. And I'm afraid those opportunities aren't truly taken. Mm. Uh, so I would like to know what exactly is going to come out of this that that favours the West and isn't just an opportunity for... for G to you know grandstands, mm. which he likes to do. Well, as as does Macron. I mean, Macron, I think, sees himself as some kind of peacemaker, doesn't he? Because he remember he was having telephone conversations with Vladimir Putin as if he represented the entire uh, force of Western Europe and that he could somehow persuade him not to have a war with Ukraine. And there is talk now that the Ukrainians might be willing to converse about possible. Um, Crimean kind of deals that could be done. And I bet you Macron would just love to find himself in the middle of all of that. Well, it was um, you cast back a few years and there was always a sort of um, signals that Macron was trying to position himself as the successor to Angela Merkel. And I think um, Angela Merkel, uh, the then German chancellor, did have some claim to kind of, in a sense, represent the EU, even though that wasn't formally her role, you know, she was very, very widely respected. You know, she was the, you know, the kind of the mother of the EU, as it as it were. Uh, and Macron was positioning himself, I think, um, to take over that role. It hasn't worked out too well, um, not least because of his own, of his domestic travails. Uh, but he just doesn't have that level of gravitas, does he? And I no. think that the the pandemic sort of undermined that that ability for him to network across uh, across the globe uh, and try to establish that kind of status for himself now i think it just looks a bit laughable really yeah. yeah i think you're right stay with us if you would as well we're going to talk about trump we're going to talk about biden he's coming to ireland it's the 25th anniversary as well as the good friday agreement uh, today and we'll talk about that plus of course uh, that emergency message that we're all going to get come the end of april this is talk tv 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots going on, of course. Don't forget uh, that you can always keep an eye on what is going on over on our sister station, uh, which is, of course, Talk Sport, because coming up this weekend, you know it's Easter because the Masters is on, basically, um, and the Masters tees off later on today. Live updates on Talk Sport for all four days, all the way through. Um, but one of the kind of harbingers of the spring and the summer uh, is watching Augusta because it's so colourful. You know, the beautiful flowers, uh, the green of the golf course, the colours that the golfers are actually wearing. And it's an expert team as ever at TalkSport. Bob Bupka, Rupert Bell, Russell Hargoose and Sean O'Brien all keeping you right up to date uh, with all the action from Augusta to find out who walks away with the famous green jacket. It all starts today at 2pm. Download the free TalkSport app now uh, to listen live and that will be uh, even if you're not interested in golf I was listening to Julie Hartley Brewer this morning talking about how she came home one day uh, to find that she had a big new television in the house and it turned out uh, that uh, it wasn't in fact anything to do with her husband's job she thought that he had had to get something work related oh no uh, it was something to do with the fact that he wanted to watch the golf and therefore had bought a massive great TV to watch it on uh, but there we go let's talk to Mark who's in Watford hello Mark Mike how are you mate very well sir you're going to tell me something about this emergency message yeah, I had one this morning, mate, half past ten. Did you? I thought, what the hell's that? Yeah, flashing red thing, emergency, emergency call, emergency call. Right. I thought, what, what the hell's that? And right. uh, um, and it just flashed for a few minutes and then went away. So it looks like they're testing it already. Really? You said next, yeah, yeah. Because I had a yeah. weird... I mean, was a, for a while, when, when I had the last car, I think it was, or maybe the one mm. before that, um, I, it went off once um, because, because the, the phone was sort of in... Um, one of those, not it wasn't in a dock, but it was in one of those kind of you know receded uh, pieces of the car dashboard, yeah. and and it, it was somehow pressed up against the wrong button, and suddenly it started going whoop whoop whoop, and I thought crikey, and it's, it ended up sending a message to, to 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 somebody else to say that I was in some kind of trouble, and I didn't even know it was set up. I'm going, what's going on? And and she calls me and goes, what's going on? I said, I don't know, I'm just driving. She's going, well, what, you know, I've just had this message that you've broken down. <laughs> I, don't know what, I don't know what that's all about, but I don't really want an emergency message. Thanks. No. Well, I, I was surprised. Uh, it was quite weird because uh, I, I thought, hang on a minute, what, what, what's that? And I looked, it was an emergency phone. And then I, I tuned in to you, and then you said, we've got an emergency call coming through next week. I was like, looks like they're starting already. <laughs> well, I wonder uh, if anybody else has got one of those. We'll, we'll keep well, an eye yeah, out. I, I'd put it out there. The other thing I was going to say, I was just looking at the file at Fox News, um, Judge Janine. Oh, yeah. Um, and she was just on about Trump. And she said that, um, that they're saying that he's got to go back in December. But she said that the whole thing's a sham. Yeah. And she said that basically uh, there is nothing on the statute books that says he's got to come back in, Dece- in December right. Right. because it's an administrative issue. Yes. Not that going to hear that from our news over here, though. No, of course not. Well, the other thing is, right, that it's not even clear yet whether the, the case can go ahead because because this guy Bragg is going to have to prove that one of the violations was federal, because if he can't do that, then it's out of time, because there's, there's a statute of limitations on anything which is in New York City itself. So he's going to have to prove one of them is a federal offence, and if he can't do that, it all goes away anyway. Absolutely. Well, absolute pile of old cobblers. Mark, thank you very much indeed. Let's talk to Ben Clapworthy, the Times travel guru, uh, who is here to give us as much advice as he possibly can about what's happening over the Easter the weekend because it is a bank holiday weekend and it should be pretty busy ben a very good morning to you good morning thank you very much for joining us i mean i'm assuming you're going to tell me and hoping you're going to tell me that it won't be anything like as bad as last weekend when uh, so many people were waiting thousands of people waiting stuck at the port of dover unable to get on a ferry uh, for all sorts of reasons but people waiting 15 17 hours what's the what's the sort of prognosis for this weekend 
Well, the queues are starting to form again at Dover. 90-minute waits uh, at the moment. Today is actually the precursor to it all in many ways. The big day for travel is tomorrow, Good Friday. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, what we have seen at all peak times uh, since uh, last summer is that queues do form at, at Dover particularly. It is a pinch point there. And there will be, unfortunately, long waiting times again this weekend. Yes. So if you are heading that way, I mean, but the bit I don't understand, and I spoke to uh, to one of your colleagues about this at the start of this week, is if the ferries know how many people they can take onto their ferries, and if they know how many ferries they've got, and the people who are trans, uh, you know, who are sort of processing those passport um, um, queues and everything else, I mean, they know this is happening. Why can they not deal with it better? Well, I mean, you're not necessarily going to like this, uh, but ultimately it's the post-Brexit passport checks that are the, the problem here. The checks Yeah, that's part of it, but, but it's not all of it, is it? That's the biggest common factor. Every time there's delays, and what we see uh, particularly is the government here uh, try and look and find other excuses for what's causing the delays. It may be that, that last weekend they said it was bad weather and hilariously that there were too many coach passengers. To your point, they knew exactly how many coach passengers were coming because the ferry companies had told the ports the common denominator through it is the passport checks. Now, at the weekend, Suella Bravman said, the Home Secretary said that it was nothing to do with Brexit. Later, a source close to her said to us that actually what she meant is that it was the way the French are checking, uh, implementing Brexit and checking passports, which I'm afraid is absolute baloney because the checks that they're carrying out are exactly the same as at all EU borders on arrivals from outside the bloc. So ultimately, the fact is that the processing time takes longer. We've seen it with Eurostar as well. They've uh, stopped selling some seats on their uh, morning services because they simply are not able to get people through the French border fast enough. Yeah. Well, I think the French are in particularly bad at this, though, because I flew to Italy last year where they were checking passports. Right. And it didn't take any longer than it took the previous year uh, when I went uh, when there were no checks on passports. Other than, I mean, they were still checking your passport, but they just weren't stamping it. And it didn't take any longer at all. And so were, I don't understand why in Italy they can manage to do it. But in France, they can't. There were uh, problems last summer on uh, one day where the uh, p the passport workers were, the French border officers were stuck and didn't get there. T to be fair to them, uh, the chief executive of the port of Dover said that they've been exemplary. This morning he said they've been exemplary in there helping they fully manned their booths the one of the other issues at dover particularly is that it is such a constrained site Ultimately, well that's the point isn't it so that's what i'm between... saying you can't just say it's brexit it's about the fact that dover is a bad site it's not well enough prepared and it's very very bad and it's always been a bottleneck and so why don't they do something about it well the only issue the only thing you really could do is blast the white cliffs of dover away and move the White Cliffs of Dover back because ultimately it's sandwiched between the reason we don't. Well, Dover it's not the only thing you could do, is it? You could actually extend across and down along the, the, the sea or you could, in fact, do what they did at Canary Wharf, if you want, and reclaim some of the sea back um, and build more space. Well, you could if you're willing to pay for it. I mean, reclaiming the sea is not a, a cheap option here. I mean, the, the ultimate well, thing it's is... Well, it's not more expensive than blowing up the White Cliffs of Dover, Ben. <laughs> no, it's not. The, the, the fact I'm just is, trying to explain to you that there's always more than one solution, as indeed there is always more than one cause. 
you could you could indeed reclaim some of the sea. The site is a problem, and ultimately, it's the busiest port in the UK. It handles uh, millions of passengers each year, and it does get very congested. Yeah, but and it always has. It, but it always it, has, hasn't it? It has always got, and that is that is some of the issue here. Is that ultimately we now do focus much more on the issues there. Whereas actually, if you say ninety minutes, we're talking about a ninety minute delay. But actually, you sit in an airport for two hours before your flight yeah. takes off. So a 90-minute delay is not necessarily the be-all and end-all if you're about to go away for a week right. in France. No, exactly right. And what about um, other sort of forms of travel? Because obviously people will be travelling for the bank holiday weekend simply in Britain. Uh, as John Redwood has suggested, it's a good idea. It's plenty of uh, good places to go. If you can find a town that hasn't got all the hotels full up with illegal migrants, away you go. Um, but the trains, any train strikes to speak of or any flights? There's a there's well, air traffic control problem in France, isn't there? Our, our friends, the French, are causing problems. Uh, it's another general strike in France today over uh, President Macron's uh, planned yes. of raising of the entirement age. Uh, that is having a knock-on. British Airways has cancelled about 20 flights. Ryanair uh, will have had to have cancelled flights in EasyJet also. That's because... Uh, the French uh, prioritise their own airspace when they have strikes, much to the fury yes, of uh, Michael O'Leary, the chief executive of uh, Ryanair, who was uh, chewing my ear off about it last week at great length yes. when we uh, met in Brussels. Um, because they do, uh, overflights are affected. His point is that you will see cancellations to destinations such as Spain uh, because of the air traffic control fr uh, strike in France, even though the holidaymakers who are affected have got no intention of going to France, they're going to Spain. So there are problems today that will likely get knocked into tomorrow as well, as is often the case with strikes. Domestically, though, no uh, rail problems but accommodation in the uk is so much more expensive than it was pre-pandemic the prices have dramatically gone up so good luck finding anything last minute uh, if you're trying to get away this weekend <laughs> yeah exactly right unless you can commandeer the odd uh, prison barge maybe that'd be the answer for a bit of a cruise around the british isles be very nice ben thanks very much indeed ben clapworthy times travel correspondent there with his uh, his version of events from what's going wrong down in dover um it isn't just brexit i'm afraid uh, whoever wants to say that, you can say it if you want, but it ain't true. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk to Alistair Carmichael, MP for Orkney and Shetland, uh, because, of course, this is the man uh, who's, well, who's going to be asked the question, what on earth is going on in Scotland? Alistair, a very good morning to you. Good morning to you, Mike. Uh, and let me tell you, anybody who wants an Easter break in Orkney and Shetland, they will be very welcome. Excellent. Here. I mean, is there not some issue with ferries over there? At, at, at that well, actually, no, the ferries issue is Calmac. That's to the west of Scotland. We're to the north of Scotland. And it's fingers crossed. You never take anything for granted when you're living on an island and you're relying <laughs> on your transport links. But fingers crossed. Our ferries are, are pretty good at the moment. Excellent. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Well, I'm sure there'll be plenty of people heading that way because yeah, you, you can't get out through Dover. You might be able I'll to get out through northern, through northern Scotland. Absolutely right. Um, an extraordinary time to be a politician, I would imagine, in Scotland at the moment because um, just this morning we saw more police officers being deployed to the house uh, that uh, uh, Peter Murrell and Nicholas Sturgeon live in. Um, I don't presume they're not there at the moment. Um, and obviously it's an open case. It's, uh, it's an ongoing investigation. Yeah. There's not much we can say about the actual investigation. But what an extraordinary thing to have happened um, to yeah. the people who were the sort of self-styled king and queen of Scotland. 
Well, I, I mean, it is a quite remarkable time, and uh, it is the one thing that everybody involved in politics, and indeed well beyond that, uh, you know, just people in the street, in the supermarket are talking about. And, um, you know, look, there is an element of drama and psychodrama, and that's not just been the preserve of the SNP in Scotland. You see that from time to time with our colleagues in, in Westminster as well. But, you know, this is a moment where really we need all our politicians and all the political classes to be focused on the things that really matter. Uh, you, we've still got a massive cost of living crisis. We have got crises in our education and our policing and our hospitals. And, you know, that's where we need to be focused. And the risk is that the drama becomes a bit of a distraction from that. But, you know, Mike, I'm not holding my hands up. I'm holding my hands up here and saying I'm as fascinated by this whole thing as anybody else, because, you know, rightly or wrongly, this is the sort of moment that you feel can affect a real change in the way politics is done. Well, you think so, don't you? Because, I mean, considering the sort of the, the rapid um, sort of the demise, if you like, of the party, you know, heading all the way back to um, Nicola Sturgeon resigning, surprisingly, out of the blue, uh, to then a sort of a very hurried leadership election, to now uh, the arrest of Peter Murrell before his resignation, and before that the resignation of Murray Foote, who was in charge of the communications of the party. I mean, how much damage do you think has been done to the party and to the independence cause as a whole? I think ultimately that remains to be seen. Uh, the question about the independence cause, you know, a, a point or two here and there in either direction, from pole to pole, um, notwithstanding, we're essentially still stuck where we were in 2014, and that's around about 55-45. And, you know, since that time, and this has been a quite deliberate uh, tactic of the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon in particular, Scotland has remained very divided. Now there is a sense all the pieces are thrown up in the air. We don't know where they're going to land. We mm. don't know what the political landscape is going to look like. But, you know, as somebody who comes from a very different political place from the nationalists and, and Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon and people like that, I kind of think this could be an opportunity for us to reset the dial and say, you know, we've had enough of the division. The division hasn't actually achieved anything. Our schools have got worse, our hospitals have got worse, our ferries are in a state of collapse. We've still got the highest rate of drug deaths in Western Europe. Let's try and put the constitutional question to one side and tackle these things that are having a very real and direct input, impact rather on, on everybody's life every day in Scotland. Indeed. And I mean, in, in, in sort of real terms, over the, the, the course of, say, the last sort of nine years since the first referendum, or first, the, the referendum, um, it, it doesn't look as though um, they've increased the numbers of people who want independence. If anything, the numbers have gone backwards. And so, you know, if, if their mission was to convince more people to prepare for a second referendum, they've sort of failed, haven't they? Well, I mean, this was part of the problem that Nicola Sturgeon's leadership has created for itself. Yeah. And it is that instead of telling those who wanted independence uh, in 2014, 2015, that really it was off the agenda for a while and they had to focus on, on running Scotland and making it 
a better uh, place with the, the powers that they have. She continued in insisting that there was going to be another independence referendum because essentially she was led by her party on that issue rather than leading it. So she said, here is what I'm going to do, but she never had any meaningful way of achieving it. And as a consequence, it gets more and more difficult with every turn of the wheel. People end up disappointed. Now, I don't think that really, as I say, the, the dial has shifted that much over the, the whole period of nine years. But my goodness, you see the difference when it comes to the delivery of public services. You know, my my kids are out of school now, they're at, at university. But having a Scottish education used to be a byword for mm. academic excellence. But now the attainment gap, you know, the opportunities for people coming from pretty ordinary backgrounds like myself and then getting on doing well in life, these opportunities have just diminished year on year and year, and it doesn't have to be like this. But everyone in politics, everyone in government only has so much bandwidth. And if you say we're going to occupy that bandwidth by talking about independence, talking about the constitution, then inevitably it is the public services that suffer as a consequence. And of course, you know, uh, Anna Sawa, the leader of the Labour Party up in Scotland, has been talking, uh, I saw him last night on Talk TV, um, about how this is possibly an opportunity for Labour um, to win some seats back, possibly in the Scottish um, Parliament, but also in, in the National Parliament in Westminster as well. What does it mean for the Lib Dems if, if, if people are starting to turn away from the SNP? Well, I mean, look, some of the seats that we lost in 2015, in fact, the, all the seats we lost in 2015 went to the SNP and some of them have come back since. So, yes, there may be electoral opportunities for us there. Uh, we've certainly taken the view that you had to fight our way back and that we weren't going to rely on other parties making mistakes. Um, having said that, if those mistakes mean that there are opportunities for us to come back in areas like the Highlands and Islands, in areas like Joe Swinson's old seat in Eastern Martinshire, perhaps in the borders in the northeast, then yes, you know, we're in a position now, we are back and strong enough that we will take advantage of, of these opportunities. What would be good to have in politics is proper political debate in Scotland about ideas, mm. you know, about liberalism, socialism, conservatism, whatever else it is, and not just about identity. Because if you have a proper debate about ideas, that's where you can see things change and you can see things get better for the people who need change. Good stuff, Alistair. Thank you very much indeed. Alistair Carmichael, MP for Orkney and Shetland, offering you uh, a warm welcome uh, to Shetland. Well, maybe not so warm, but certainly Shetland will be a place you could go to if you can't get out of France or you can't get out of England uh, into France. You might be go, just head north, go to Scotland, and uh, you might be able to get a ferry. You might be able to have a good time. This is Talk TV. Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk. Mike Graham, the only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Online, on DAB+, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's Thursday, so we are delighted to tell you and delighted to bring you the Thursday Club, which will be coming up uh, towards the end of the show with Amy Smith, uh, who is, of course, one of the three drinkers. He's going to be bringing us some uh, rather enjoyable libations to help us prepare ourselves uh, for the big bank holiday weekend. This is Maundy Thursday. Used to be, as I said at the start of the show, a big day off for everybody who works in national newspapers because Good Friday used to be the day uh, where no newspaper came out because Good Friday used to be 
probably the second biggest holiday in this country after Christmas Day. Um, but it's not really anymore. We've got the Masters starting up today. Live talk sport action from two o'clock. Uh, we'll be doing all of that uh, later on in the show as well. We'll get some betting odds for you, uh, for those of you who like to follow it. But it is one of the harbingers of the summer, isn't it? Because you look at the TV screen, and if you're lucky enough to have one of those very, very crisp and clear displays, you know, the green of the grass and the pink of the, of the flowers and, and the yellows and the, the beautiful colours around all the trees and the blossoms and everything. It really is quite a gorgeous event to look at, you know. Uh, even if you don't like golf, just put it on and cheer yourself up. The weather isn't looking great today. If you're heading off anywhere, uh, it's going to be busy tomorrow, they say. But uh, as has been pointed out by Nini, uh, if it's Brexit down in Dover, how come Simon Calder told jo- Julie Hartley Brewer this morning, this weekend, which is the busiest weekend, wouldn't be as bad as last weekend because, in quotes, measures have been taken. Well, that's true. I mean, I think the whole point about this Brexit or not Brexit problem is that, yes, of course, things have become slightly more complex travelling to Europe. But most of the reason for that is because the people who are manning uh, the posts in the European side are being a bit bloody minded. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, Everybody knew that last weekend it was going to be busy at Dover. But the port of Dover uh, and the French border patrol actually didn't conspire to make it worse. We heard from a coach driver who said, well, one of the problems is you drive into the shed, which is where the French uh, uh, border police are, uh, and they take five minutes to go through an entire coachload of passports, and then they take a 10-minute break before they do the next one. So that tells you why it's so slow. In addition to which, of course, uh, there's only so many buses and coaches that can get through that particular space because it's not big enough. Ben Clatworthy said they need to blow up the White Cliffs of Dover. Well, I don't think they do, actually. They just need to make the space bigger. Surely there's a way of doing that. If anybody's got a brain in this country, you could find a way. But finding a way seems to be more and more difficult. We're going to talk to Norma Brennan now, former police officer, director of the Law and Order Foundation, because a couple of stories came across the desk today. One... Postcode lottery once again, uh, because if you want to have the police come and check out what's happened if you've been burgled, um, 120 burglaries a day they are failing to actually get to. Um, Well, which may or may not be better than it was, because before, I think it was something like a 6% number of burglaries actually solved. Hardly any police will visit you if you have been burgled. Uh, But more importantly, perhaps than that, is that seriously important police officers have been moved from serious crime um, departments in the Metropolitan Police to try and clean up the bits of the Metropolitan Police that aren't very clean. I don't know what's going on. Let's ask Norman. Norman, very good afternoon to you, sir. Yeah, good afternoon, Mike. Um, I mean, let's start with the Metropolitan Police. Um, It seems to have been under attack and under fire now for as long as I can remember. Um, going all the way back to the sort of early part of uh, the, 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 this 21st century that we're in. Um, does it seem like a good idea, does it, to take very good and, and hard-working officers off um, work that they should be doing to solve crimes to, to try and sort of investigate themselves? Well, playing devil's advocate, um, <laughs> the Met Police at the moment can't do right for wrong. Yeah. Um, Highlighted was uh, a number of officers that should never have been in the police. Along comes a new Met Commissioner, and his first promise is, I'm going to clean up the Met Police, and I'm going to make sure that uh, the people of London get the best possible, honest, hard-working police officers. And for him to do that as quickly as he wants to, he has to have resources. Well, there's only so so many finite resources that he can go to. Yeah. So... Probably on a temporary measure, he's taken officers away from the anti-terrorist squad and uh, probably several other units to ensure 
that uh, he can tackle those that shouldn't be in the police service and get rid of them. And hopefully, soon afterwards, these officers will go back to the uh, jobs that they, it's their speciality. That's uh, serious organised crime and uh, anti-terrorism duties. Yes. Well, I mean, you'd like to think that at any given time, and you, you'll know this better than anybody, and certainly in anti-terror police, there's a number of ongoing investigations. I mean, we've often been told that they're looking at sort of 500 plots at any given moment in time uh, that are going on. Um, you can't really just take people off that, can you? Well, you can do, but don't forget that there are a large number of officers attached to the anti-terrorist uh, unit. They do work and protect us and have prevented a number of attacks that the public uh, and you and I would never know. Um, they also work very closely with MI5 internal intelligence and MI6 external intelligence. So although a number of officers have been taken away from that unit, uh, I don't think that the country has been compromised because there's still a lot of serving officers of various ranks and MI5 and MI6 working close together that uh, will obviously ensure that we aren't attacked. Mm. And I'm sure if uh, the heightened um, attack is is actually increased, those officers or some of those officers that have been de-attached uh, just temporarily will be reassigned as soon as possible. Yes. So mission has got it about right. I mean, we're hearing as well that an awful lot of police officers currently in the employ of the Metropolitan Police are going to be re-vetted. I'm not quite sure how extensive that re-vetting is going to be, who's going to do it, and, and how on earth, if they have to be re-vetted, they got in in the first place. Yeah, I mean, vetting is all well and good. But the, the, the thing is, Mike, you can get somebody that joins the Met or any police uh, service in Britain with an exemplary record, uh, is an exemplary character, and over the few years that they're in, they can turn rogue. Mm. They might have marital problems, mental health problems, uh, drink or drug issues that they perhaps never had before they joined the police. So how many times can you vet someone? Obviously, they're going to put some sort of stern, um, rigid practice in the place where there's a department that does permanently vet those that A, are joining the police service and those that perhaps have been highlighted of having issues uh, either on social media or within policing. And that will normally come from sergeants, inspectors and supervisors that may highlight issues or even their colleagues. Uh, and I think you're probably going to get a very good, honest, hardworking Met Police service that come out of uh, Samart Rowley's um, overseeing of it all and I think he should be given that time if we keep criticising the Met day in and day out and the Commissioner keeps apologising day in and day out we're just going to go around in a circle yeah. I think we're moving no, I, I, I couldn't agree more with you on that, Norman, because I know that you're a great defender of the police and I think it's good that you are because very few people do it and, and it's important to know that not every police officer is painted in the same way. Uh, not every police officer is, is, is uh, the way that the Metropolitan Police are currently being described by an awful lot of people who should probably know better. You know, I mean, I, I understand that there are rogue officers in the police and I understand that there have been some terrible cases, Wayne Cousins, of course, being, being the worst of all. Um, but, but, you know, there's no point in pretending that that isn't an isolated incident because it really is. And uh, I was I was made to, to kind of stop in my tracks, really, when I saw that they had a similar investigation into the fire service um, the other day. And they came up, surprise, surprise, with all the same things, you know, that it's full of racist, misogynist, you know, nasty, horrible, ghastly people, bullies. And you think to yourself, well, hang on, these people are doing quite a dangerous job. Um, 
is that really the right actual kind of way to describe them or is it a little bit over the top well the majority of police officers don't forget mind the met police has over thirty-two thousand officers so mark rowley has highlighted about 200 i bet there isn't a business or industry in britain where the bosses have looked down at some of the staff including other bosses and saying i don't know why you're in this organization because in fact you're you know you're not very good at what you do but to get rid of people sometimes is very difficult but within policing don't forget it's the honest police officers that actually investigate and arrest and convict the dishonest officers. What I will say is this, and I've known this in policing and I've been in it for 43 years, is the thing is, Mike, with somebody that's corrupt, is that they're very good at covering their tracks. So it's all well and good saying someone was called this name, someone was called that name. Why wasn't this highlighted? Well, policing is a very busy job. We don't always get time to forensically investigate every single colleague we have. And most officers that are corrupt have been good at what they do mm. because they're good at covering themselves. But then we blame everybody else for not highlighting them. And everyone else says, well, hang on a minute. We knew he was probably not great, but we didn't know he was as bad or she right. was as bad. That later found out every officer's got a job to do and they just want to get on mm. with it. They don't want to keep looking over their shoulders. They don't want to keep looking at their colleagues saying, are you good, bag or rogue? Because at the end of the day, public won't get the best mm. from those officers. No, I suppose that's true. But then again, I mean, without wishing to, to make out that this is a regular occurrence, obviously, when you've got people like Wayne Cousins, whose nickname in the force was the rapist or, you know, Bastard Dave, uh, who, whose nickname was that, you kind of go, well, somebody must have known something. Yeah, it's all right having names, but don't forget, it's like when you go to court, you can accuse somebody of any offence on the statute book, but proving it is another story entirely. Officers, I had a nickname when I was in the police service. Some are not pleasant. Mine was pretty OK. Mm. Um, but because you're called a nickname or a certain name doesn't mean that you've actually committed the offence. No. The is attached to no i get that but but you know what i mean but what i'm saying is is that you know is there a tendency sometimes for these organizations to look inside themselves and find things which are what they kind of want to find if you know what i mean you know they want to find racism they want to find misogyny they want to find bullying and that's what's always in the report i think i think we get lost with the word institutionally racist when the stephen lawrence case happened i was the only serving police officer in britain that actually stood up for the police service mm. um, when stephen lawrence was murdered the police weren't really institutionally racist in that particular case they were institutionally uh, inapt mm. they were not investigators they failed stephen's family and I actually phoned DCC Alien, the deputy chief constable that oversaw the Met Police. Mm. And before I did my interviews, he said to me, only part of my report was used by Lord uh, McPherson. And McPherson identified that a racist incident had to be where the victim perceived it to be racist. Yeah. Well, if you were felt that way and it wasn't the case, that was deemed as, as, as racist. So let's put all these names aside Let's roll our sleeves up. Let's get the best police service back on the streets that we once had. And let's get the public supporting us. Because the more we call each other names or we look at what this definition is of this, what this definition is that, you're not getting the best from policing. And in fact, more and more are saying, Do you know what, this isn't the job for me. I'm on my toes. And we don't want to lose those sort of 
experienced officers that care a lot about London and other streets in Britain. No, of course. Norman, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Norman Brennan there, former police officer himself, director of the Law and Order Foundation. A couple of tweets coming in on the subject of this emergency broadcast, right? Uh, Paddy in Andover says, just opted out of the alert system, mind control experiment, just use settings on the iPhone. Uh, it is easy. Uh, and one from um, Michael in Kent who says, Ray, emergency messages, I think nuclear alerts are a real possibility at the moment. The government is damned if it does and damned if it doesn't. Well, what are you going to do if you wake up on a Sunday afternoon from your nap and your phone's telling you there's a nuclear alert? Hey? And then you go, oh, it's only a drill. What? Heaven's sake. For heaven's sake. Um, also, how about this one from Alison? Make sure that you don't interfere with the government's emergency alert warning set test by accidentally going to settings, then notifications, then scrolling down to extreme alert and severe alert and disabling them both. <laughs> Yeah, make sure you don't do that. Uh, get your warnings of tidal waves, bushfires and volcanoes here. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.